the Hay Kings podcast, sponsored by Vermeer, your expert in hay and forage equipment. Last time we were joined by Kat Salois. Kat's the Director of Research and Technology for the McGregor Company in Washington State. Last time we talked about fertilizer programs and biostimulants and making some of those on-farm decisions. And we talked about the process of getting a chemical labeled for a crop. And in this case, she's done a lot of work in Timothy. I wanted to bring Kat back to talk about the research specifically that she's done for Timothy and talk about brown leaf and fungicides and all the great work that she's been doing in the Timothy capital of the world, Ellensburg, Washington. Welcome back. Well, thank you, John Paul, for having me. I love getting to talk about the work that both myself and McGregor Company have got to do across the entire Pacific Northwest. Yes, a lot of our work focuses in the Kittitas Valley, but we also have dryland, alfalfa, and uh, Timothy, some orchard grass work as well. Let's talk specifically about this Timothy research. Now, we're going to lose everybody like south of the 45th parallel here. Uh, <laughs> sure. <laughs> we're, we're talking about a cool season grass. So this is this is northern, northern states uh, up into Canada. Hopefully this will be educational for quite a few northern tier producers. But just understand that a lot of these themes do present themselves for warm season grasses too. Uh, I would agree. Um, yeah, Timothy is kind of a unique beast, but we'll get into a few of those nuances. Okay. Uh, where do you want to start with your research program on Timothy? Probably just how it started because it was fairly comical. McGregor's has a huge history of research in the PNW, and I would say that I think that's fairly unique for an egg retailer. So McGregor's is a family-owned independent egg retailer. We're based solely out of the PNW, meaning we the retail footprint only exists in Oregon, Washington, and Idaho today. So generally, we're probably one of the largest independent retailers across the U.S. with only a three-state footprint mm-hmm. for some kind of size, scope, context. It is pretty unique for an independent retailer to have their own research program. And you compile what you guys call the research compendium every year, which is hundreds of pages of research. Right. Yeah. The research compendium, uh, I've just actually sent to the printer last Friday. It's about 250 pages. The standing joke throughout COVID is evidently we stress research. (laughs) (laughs) And when we get nervous, we just put more out. (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) Right. So that kind of blew up in my face this year. But yeah, the research program is myself. So I'm the director of research and I actually have three other full-time employees that do nothing but this for the company. Mm Mm-hmm. It is a smaller company, so we all wear a million hats, but there's four of us dedicated to this research program. The company owns 350 acres here in Colfax that is completely devoted to research. And also the company has a different LLC out of Hooper, Washington that has owned ground that has some dedication to research as well. So that's just the owned ground. And then another probably 40 locations throughout our entire retail footprint on any one year. As the company has expanded from Dryland Egg headquartered here in Colfax through acquisitions over time into the basin and now stretching into the Kittitas Valley, the need for research, and it's really a flagship of what McGregor's does, expands right on with that retail expansion. So when the company acquired a branch in the Kittitas Valley, one of the big 
excitements was being able to bring research to that area. It took me a while to get started. And quite honestly, um, Carrie Clift, who's the business unit manager, and I mean, he's been a hay producer in Ellensburg for, uh, I don't know exactly how to date him, a long time. (laughs) A long time. He acquired this piece of ground for me and pretty much called and said, I'm going to do it on my own unless you show up. So (laughs) (laughs) I want to know this person. (laughs) Right. He is a man of action. So it was pretty much, I know that having it done poorly is going to bother you. So you're going to be here tomorrow, right? Sweet. (laughs) Yep. And it totally worked. (laughs) We were pretty much there yesterday. Um, Thankfully, you had mentioned Steve Franzen, uh, Steve Norberg. These two gentlemen have done a lot of forage grass work in and out of the basin. And thankfully, they're very um, willing to share their knowledge and expand what they are doing to other entities. And they were incredibly helpful in us getting started. Five years ago, 15 acre piece of ground right in between Kittitas and Ellensburg. We have it in a rotation with both Timothy and Alfalfa. So we rotate it every three years. Uh, we have 10th acre strips. So 20 10th acre strips mm-hmm. on each species. And then another probably 500 small acreage plots behind that. So we can really do Anything from fertility to crop protection, fungicides. Um, We can collect yield data, feeding data. We can do long-term residual studies, anything like that. Mm -hmm. Now we have access to a permanent piece of ground. That's awesome. So what's the latest and greatest from your research trials in Timothy? Let's see. 2021, we changed our rotation. So we flopped the sides and reestablished both Timothy and alfalfa just on different sides. So we spent a decent amount of time with burn down, both of Timothy and alfalfa. Come to find out alfalfa is a really annoying crop to kill. When it, <laughs> those those tap roots are, are horrible. <laughs> they are intense. So yeah, it's one of those, you think it would be simple, but it is. it was not that simple. So Spend some time doing some burn down studies there. And since we got the opportunity to reseed, started digging into seeding rates, coated seed versus uncoated, different seed treatments. Really, kind of bizarrely, one of the more interesting things that came out of that work was the need for improved seed treatments on alfalfa. The current seed treatment offerings throughout most of alfalfa, if you look at your seed treatment bag, it's usually Apron XL, which is a group four and it gives you protection to oomycetes. So that would be something like Pythium or Phytophthora. In our environments, and I would be willing to bet a whole lot more environments throughout the U.S., Mm -hmm. things like Rhizoctonia and Fusarium are massively important, and Apron XL offers no protection whatsoever to those early season damping off complexes that contain Rhizoc and Fusarium. So I've been doing some research on how to get better protection against those damping off diseases and have some really promising label expansions in some modes of action for that use case. You presented down at the Hay Expo and you talked about nutrient packages to go along with fungicides. That was something that caught my attention in particular. Yeah. Okay. Let me dive into that. So with the, the fungicides, fungicides are not a new use case in alfalfa. They're not a use, new use case in any of our cereal crops as well. So things like headline and preaxor, I would say, are relatively common in alfalfa. 
Alfalfa is a pretty short cut cycle. So most of the basin, we're on a 28-day cut cycle. So headline in first cutting and then carrying all the way through third cutting is usually a pretty common practice. Mm -hmm. Some of the, I would say, quote unquote, more cool research that we've done on the cereal side is how important it is to pair fungicides that have a strong plant health component with them with a very good foliar feeding package. Really how that came to play is if you've ever sat in on some of the plant health discussions around fungicides, the increased, there's several components to go into that plant health space. There's increased root growth, increased photosynthesis, and increased nutrient use efficiency. So one of those triggers is in particular F500 or headline actually upregulates photosynthesis. So it tells that plant that it's actually in a low energy status and it wants to upregulate growth. Okay, well, we just said that we are putting a material on that tells that plant it needs to upregulate growth. If we have a nutritional package that supplies the growth of that plant before that application, odds are high it's not going to sufficiently deal with the increase in growth. The thing that's really interesting about forages... (laughs) is you're already dealing with a crop that puts on a ton of biomass, right? Like that's what it's bred to do. Yep. So now you're putting on a material that says, okay, you're in peak biomass accumulation and odds are high we're putting these fungicides on right as you're going into peak biomass Mm -hmm. accumulation. We're going to stress you even more by having this gargantuan nutrient demand. If we don't account for that, the result wasn't exactly pretty. Let's take a break there and we'll get a word from our sponsor. One reason we updated and went to the Vermeer, the durability on these balers has been tremendous. They are overbuilt balers. The weaknesses that we had on our other balers have been addressed, and that helps give dependability to these balers. I'm Jeff Jones, and that's the reason why I switched to the Vermeer 504R Premium Baler. See financing at baler.vermeer.com. You're applying these products in the Timothy world as the stem is elongating as you're really building up that biomass. You're getting that height growth, all that big yield increase. You're telling the plant it can grow more and faster, but then it doesn't have enough nutrients. That's what I just heard you say. Correct. And that's where, I mean, kind of right back to some of that earlier conversation of a lot of the fertility plan that you have in place can supply, let's say, a two pound per day accumulation of nitrogen. Okay, well, that's pretty steady state throughout Mm -hmm. most of that growing Mm -hmm. cycle of that plant. But during peak biomass, peak stem elongation, our Timothy crop, and I'd be willing to bet quite a few of those other like grassy forages, Mm -hmm. they're going to demand upwards of five pounds of nitrogen per day during that peak stem elongation. Per day. (laughs) Right. (laughs) That's I mean, in my world, we're only putting on 100 pounds total. So if you're telling me we're going to use that, in the last 20 days of maturity. Yes. Well, not in the not last necessarily. 20 days of maturity, but during that peak biomass demand. Sure. Oh, and then you stack on that we're on the 48th parallel. So the reason I throw that in there is that means our soils are cool. Mm-hmm. And the organic matter release that, say, your southern environments are used to getting, our reality is we don't get that in time. Right. Right. <laughs> Where yeah. you're, you're getting that organic matter breaking down and in, into that bioavailable nutrient, right? Yep. And that's happening, say, in June, and your peak biomass demand is happening in May. These are nuances that just understanding 
what you're asking the crop to do when paired with your environment, now we can see that we have this very real demand that impacts both yield and quality of that grass forage that's happening, say, mid-April through May. Anyways, this is kind of all going back to the, you know, that fungicide of you're putting that right on during peak demand. One of the huge lessons we learned in cereals is if we don't pair it with a foliar nutrition package, we actually get a yellowing. Saw the same exact thing happen in Timothy. That's bad. Right? Clean and green is the Timothy motto. (laughs) Correct. So it was really frustrating because the first time we put these fungicides on, I'm like, I could see cleaner leaves that were yellower. (laughs) Oh. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. And then just had this complete like, you know, palm to face moment where you're like, we have learned this lesson before. We were nitrogen limited. We just put the crop into a nitrogen limited status let's foliar feed it during the same time and see what happens. Mm -hmm. And yeah, lo and behold, (laughs) good agronomy is good agronomy and doesn't really matter what crop you're looking at. Same (laughs) lesson (laughs) needed to be learned again. (laughs) Well, I'm happy to hear that you figured that out. Can you take me through what does that nutrient package look like? You're, you're talking about nitrogen limited. Uh, How does that, how does that play in with brown leaf? It's a, the bottom leaves of that Timothy plant turn brown and it makes it a really ugly kind of unmarketable product. How does that play into brown leaf? How does it play into the whole uh, overall color? Sure. And probably something to just throw out there right now. I have come to appreciate that brown leaf can mean many things. Okay. And what we refer to as brown leaf in the Northern climates is might not be the same thing throughout the entire U S So brown leaf could be a shading effect. It could be a nutrient effect and it could be a pathogen. So just to get that out there, um, that means that that nutritional package very well could need to be tailored depending on where you are. So in our environment, in in the more Northern tiers, usually that brown leaf is some combination of some septoria or tan spot on is a pathogen, Mm -hmm. shading Mm -hmm. and a nitrogen and potassium reallocation, I'll say. So you're saying I've had a stand of Timothy that I put in and, and the drill wasn't calibrated right? Bad on me. I, I know better. Uh, and we ended up with like 12 or 13 pounds of seed to the acre. And I know in, okay. the, in the Columbia Basin, some guys are running as low as three or four. And I, I was really kind of <laughs> sh- really shooting for six, seven, eight kind of rate, right? Uh, so I almost doubled my seeding rate and it came in like dog hair. And I, that was the worst brown leaf I've ever seen on that like bottom six inches of that plant because yep. it wasn't getting any sun anymore. <laughs> yep. So that shading effect, you're a hundred percent spot on that like seeding rate, that plants per acre yield component is pretty foundational, right? Like right. you got to get that right. And if it's overcrowded, you're going to create thin and spindly stems, which maybe that's desirable in some markets, yeah, but it's that lower leaf that's going to slough, right? So that isn't a pathogen or a disease issue or, or a nutritional issue, right? Right. It's a crowding issue. Yep. So that's one kind of brown leaf. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> so, yep. So you see, this is like a, a not the easiest ball of string to unravel. Yeah, I gotcha. Uh, Yep. Then there's several leaf diseases. So the ones that are kind of common in this area, anthracnose, septoria, and tan spot, I'd say are probably the most common. Mm -hmm. Something like the fungicides that we have been looking at, the 
product name of the one I keep referring to is Veltima. So it's a BASF product that's um, headline, which is a strobo-urine chemistry in their new group three. It has activity on those diseases. And so now you can get those spots to go away. Do we have a label for that now? I'm just clarifying here. Pretty confident that the label is 100% in play for domestic. And then you really need to work with your exporter to understand if it is okay for their export market. MRLs do exist. Okay, good to know. That's uh, minimum residual levels. Maximum residual levels. There we go. Yeah, maximum residual levels. Every country has their own. So depending on which exporter you're working with, if they're just a Japan exporter or just a Taiwan or just a Chinese, they would have different MRLs. Okay. Yeah, so that's when you just got to work with your exporter to understand what MRLs you're working under. But yeah, for domestic use, on label. So now we have an option to help clear that pathogen effect. Mm -hmm. All right, so now let's think about the nutritional effect. Usually what I see brown leaf coming back to is your mobile nutrients reallocate from the bottom of the plant to the top of the plant. It's basic physiology. If the plant doesn't have enough of that nutrition below ground, it reallocates, which means that it will... Rob Peter to pay Paul, mm-hmm. right? So it takes the leaves that it's not photosynthesizing with a ton down at the bottom of the plant and will mobilize them to the reproductive parts at the top of the plant. So then when you start seeing, depending on what that looks like, usually it's nitrogen or potassium stress that's being reallocated. So that's where on that foliar package, I really like, especially in our grass crops, to think about nitrogen and potassium is nutrients that odds are high they are going to be limited during that peak stem elongation, right when you're putting on some of these fungicides, right when you're going into overcrowding. So that kind of combination of that three-peered approach, three-tillered approach to controlling brown leaf seems to be quite effective. That's really encouraging. It's the biggest, biggest deterrent as we're considering the color and exportability of, of our product. Correct. Yep. And how that, I mean, there's a, a lot of other environmental nuances that uh, were smacked in the face in uh, 2021. Uh, you mean like the worst drought we've ever had? Oh, oh, <laughs> or that whole the hottest June you have ever seen. Oh, yeah. Yep. <laughs> that. Now, yes. Both of those things. Not good. In, in my neck of the woods, we went from 26 degrees on May 19th to uh, 96 degrees two weeks later. It, that was, that's what you call brutal. Yes. And yeah, for guys who didn't live that environment, what it caused a lot of the forage crops to do is they bolted and then died. So that was a very convenient thing for quality. (laughs) Yeah. So you had stems that were six inches tall and done. And had a head and decided to slough a leaf. With teeny tiny little seed heads. Yeah, it was not a pretty state of affair. Or some of the worst alfalfa. I mean, I remember putting alfalfa on the ground that was in full bloom that was nine inches tall. Wow. Well, I I can relate to that. First cutting irrigated alfalfa for me was a ton and a quarter to the acre, which is like a ton to the acre shy of what it should have been. Uh, Yeah. Just absolute temperature stress and oh my gosh, the worst. Yeah. And it's one of those in retrospect, not that we can do anything about it today, but had it been just the heat or just the drought, Mm Mm-hmm. I think our management practices are resilient enough to handle that. Right. It was everything coming together. 
Yep. Oh, and then here's an interesting stat for you that you'd probably uh, appreciate. Let's go with that. So you're you're trying to spray your hay crop, right? And that's going to happen sometime in that month of April. Yep. In our environment. Or for me, mm, the first week in May. There, there you go. Okay. Into the first week of May. Guess how many, quote, spray days you had in that time frame. And here's what I qualify as a spray day. Less than 15 miles an hour of wind. Mm-hmm. It did not freeze the night before or the night after. Uh, not very many, I'm going to guess. Uh, on in Colfax, America, we had exactly two. Wow, two in that entire forty-day time frame where it did not blow more than fifteen miles an hour and did not freeze the night before or after. Those are yeah, that is a severely limiting factor to <laughs> doing oh my using these good management tools that you've been so hard uh, <laughs> working so hard to develop. <laughs> Yes. And now, oh, by the way, timing matters and it's really important. Ready, go. (laughs) Kat, it's been wonderful talking to you today. Thank you for your time. And I hope the farmers listening to this take away those points about that on-farm decision-making process as we're evaluating fertilizers in this extraordinarily high-cost environment, as we're evaluating bioproducts. It's about identifying that limiting factor and then how to address that particular limiting factor, not just going with the hype about any one biostimulant or fertilizer or anything really it's what's holding you back correct understand your problems solve the problems yeah i like that model a lot and that's ultimately that's going to be the most profitable too right 100 percent. yep if it's not a limiting factor for you it can't be a profitable venture for you right thank you again so much Mm -hmm.